0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people, I've done uh, over 500 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P and click on the past interviews menu. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to support it, even to a modest extent, you know, five dollars a month or something makes a difference, then there's a PayPal button on every page of the site, and thank you to those who have been supporting it. My guest today is Mark Nepo. Mark has been called one of the quote, finest spiritual guides of our time, quote, a consummate storyteller and an eloquent spiritual teacher those are all in quotes. (laughs) Um, His work is widely accessible and used by many, and his books have been translated into more than 20 languages. A best-selling author, he has published 21 books and recorded 14 audio projects. In 2016 he was named by Watkins Mind Body Spirit as one of the 100 most spiritually influential living people and was also chosen as one of Owns Super Soul 100 that's Oprah Winfrey's uh, network a group of inspired leaders using their gifts and voices to ele- elevate humanity. Mark is a regular columnist for Spirituality and Health magazine. Recent books include I'm going to hold them up here as I go. Um Drinking from the River of Light, More Together Than Alone, cited by spirituality and practice as one of the best spiritual books of 2018, Things That join the Sea and the Sky, a Nautilus Book Award winner, The Way Under the Way, The Place of True Meeting, a Nautilus Book Award winner. If you'd like more information about Mark and his books or events, I'll be linking to marknepo.com or also a site called the dot I'll be linking to those from his page on BatGap. So thanks, Mark. Welcome.
1: Oh, thank you. It's great to be with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: As one of the finest spiritual guides of our time, <laughs> I'm sure that makes you blush a little bit when people say that. Um... Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. But we can just get, get into the work, right? <laughs> right. But in any case, millions of
0: people do derive inspiration from your work and spiritual inspiration. But let's start with a key question. How do you define spirituality?
1: Well, for me, and then this will lead into sharing a little bit of my journey, I understand spirituality as the direct experience of everything that's larger than us, everything that's within us, I feel like being awake is being a conduit and a membrane, if you will. So when I'm awake, which for me, I don't personally believe in an arrived state of enlightenment. I mean, I'm not saying it can't happen. It's just not been my experience in my time on earth. Maybe someone is, maybe the Dalai Lama is always enlightened, but I feel like being a human being, the being is infinite and the human is very finite. And so we're kind of like lightning in a bottle. And I love, you know, medieval monks, with, when asked how they practice their faith, would say by falling down and getting up. And I love that. And I experience that a lot. And so I can be clear and confused and, you know, safe and afraid and awake and asleep. And so, you know, Maimonides, the great Jewish rabbi and physician, he had a great image where he said, you know, wakefulness and learning it's like it's like making your way across a field with bursts of lightning at night. For a second you see everything, and then you see nothing. And every time you get a glimpse, you add a little bit to your field of vision, to your map, to your understanding. And then when it goes dark, you got to make your way by what you know from when you could see. So I understand are and different traditions have different names for this but you know our soul to me is the portion of universal spirit that we carry in the container that's us while we're here we have a bluebird house in our backyard and you know that little bit of air inside the bluebird house is this, is equal to the sky it's the same stuff and so i think like we carry around you know we are a container. And and so a big question for me always is, can I be a good steward of the portion of universal spirit I've been blessed to carry while I'm here? That's great.
0: I really resonated with everything you said. I like the word conduit. I often like the phrase um, that we're sense organs of the infinite you know, the infinite.
1: Oh, yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah.
0: the infinite <clears throat> pervades everything. And, and we're like little tendrils or little sense organs, all billions and billions of life forms on earth, each with our own capacity to sense.
1: Yeah. And to give a little from my, my journey is I'm 68. We were just talking before we went on. But in my 30s, you know, I, I had a rare form of lymphoma. And that's a blood died.
0: disease, isn't it? Blood cancer? No, um, not, notes, the lymph nodes, the lymph system. Yeah,
1: yes. yeah. And so, for a three year period in my mid 30s, it was the heat of it where I almost died, and I'm blessed to be here. And so, you know, I was raised Jewish, and I feel great tied to the Jewish heritage. But through that journey, I was blessed to have people from all walks of life and faith help me. And all beyond the normal traditions, you know, everything, including, you know, quote, scientists and atheists and everything. So, you know, being blessed to still be here, I was not and still am not wise enough to know what worked and what didn't. And I feel like from that point forward, I was called to believe in everything. And so I've been a student of all paths and all my books are really kind of an effort to affirm the common center of all paths while uplifting the unique gifts of each. And I, I like to think, you know, I'm a, I'm a poet and philosopher and cancer survivor. And It's the poet in me that sees. It's the philosopher in me that tries to make sense of what I see and feel. But it's the cancer survivor in me that's committed and the teacher that's committed to. It doesn't mean anything if we can't apply it. I've found like the only thing that remains abstract or things we don't personalize if anything we talk about is speaking to anyone who's listening where does it live in your life how does it look like we were just saying and we're sense organs of the infinite well what does that feel like on a daily basis how do you know when you're awake and what does that look like well I can't you know nobody can inhabit that or specify that except the individual nice You're an interesting guy to talk to.
0: As you go on, there's like every few seconds you say something that could actually be an interesting tangent to go into (laughs) a conversation. But one thing is, as I was listening to you, I have all my screensavers or my background desktop pictures are pictures of galaxies and nebulae and stuff like that. And so several different ones flashed on the screen just as you were speaking. And I I was thinking, as I often do, of the vastness of the universe and all the life that undoubtedly lives in it. And how there are you know trillions of inhabited planets by most astronomers um calculations, and my assumption is that most of the ones that have developed in intelligent life have probably had thousands of religions, and each of those religions has probably thought that it had the, the a monopoly on the truth um so there's just like trillions of monopolies on the truth out there, and obviously they're they're not monopolies on the truth that again everyone's a sense organ of the infinite which has its own little Perspective on things, and what you said about just being open to everything, and you know how did you put it? Just learning from everything, being open to all perspectives,
1: really being a student of all paths. Yeah, yeah. So you know, one of the a great ways that helps me understand this is the teacher that spring is, and it's a metaphor for me for all the different paths. You know, every spring we have thousands of birds and insects that each one is innately drawn to a particular nectar and to a particular pollen and to pollinate a particular fruit, shrub, flower, plant. And we need all of them or there's no spring. So if the bees suddenly said we're fundamentalist bees and said (laughs) we're going to all do it our way, well, even if they had some way that they could enforce that or leverage that, we wouldn't have spring. It wouldn't work. And I feel like we have all the traditions, formal and informal, because we need every one of them to have a human spring. No one is going to work. And it's like what might pollinate your spirit and what might pollinate mine could be different, it probably will be different. And yet, paradoxically, the same source, the same source material, if you will. That's great. I mean, look at the diversity and the fecundity of
0: nature, there's just so much creativity and, you know, just a huge explosion of different kinds of animals and plants and flowers and everything else. And that's the way God rolls. So, you know, if that's the way the intelligence that governs the universe likes to do it, why shouldn't humans reflect that and in, in their traditions and paths to, some, some say that there are as many paths to God as there are people on the planet.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, I think in the West, we often, in our kind of devotion to a monotheistic version of things, you know, we misunderstand, for instance, the Hindu tradition, which has so many deities and gods. And, you know, often in the West, we want to cast that as pagan. or, And to me, the Hindu understanding of the infinite, it's so vast that it's like facets of a prism. No one approach no one understanding, no one story, no one face is going to do it, so we need many to approach it.
0: Yeah, and Hindus, if they really understand their tradition, will tell you that all these different gods are just different expressions of the one, you know, of the one wholeness, the one Brahman, the one all-pervading intelligence. They just are different flavors or laws of nature, impulses of intelligence, you could say, of the one vast field of intelligence.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, I'm I'm uh, partial to Ganesh, the Hindu provider and remover of obstacles. And I didn't realize that, you know, I, I love uh, many people, if the listening or they're not familiar, you know, Ganesh is always represented as an elephant who has four arms. And I, you know, I've always, wherever I go, like, oh, I see one and I, oh, well, and I pick it up. And then all of a sudden, you know, my wife Susan one day said, "Oh, I see you're collecting Ganeshes," and I, I said, "Oh, I guess I am. I, I didn't realize I was, but I yeah. am." Or they're they're really collecting me, I guess. Facets of me. And
0: you we know, have one well, over I, our kitchen sink, despite which the garbage disposal got clogged recently, and we had to be replaced.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I I love. Didn't remove that uh, obstacle. Yeah, I did. I love you know in the in the West. We always seek, you know, saints and sages to get us out of trouble. But what I love about the Hindu notion of Ganesh is the provider and remover of obstacles. And because obstacles are teachers. And so until we learn what we're to learn and and they're removed, or our way of perceiving is what's the obstacle, and we learn it wasn't really a problem in the first place. But, you know, this sense that we were talking earlier about, being very alive and and not in an arrived state of enlightenment. I mean, the story about Ganesh, a lot of Ganeshes, you'll most of them you'll see one of his tusks is broken in his hand. And the story, the myth around that is that Ganesh himself ran into an obstacle and got so angry that he broke off his own tusk and threw it at the moon. And the moon laughed at him and spit it back at him. And so Ganesh carries his broken tusk in, in humility that even the god of obstacles is not exempt from obstacles.
0: Since we're on the theme of Hinduism or the Vedic tradition, there are a couple different models in that tradition of there being creative impulses, but also destructive ones, and that, that both are necessary in order for things to be counterbalanced. You can turn it, speak of it in terms of the gunas, Satwa Rajas and Tamas, or in terms of like Brahma the Creator and Shiva the Destroyer or whatever, but it's understood in that tradition that both aspects of the mechanics of creation are essential. And we, we see that in practice. I mean, if stars didn't die, there wouldn't be us. There would be no heavy, heavy elements to have formed our bodies. You know, there's Ecclesiastes first that was popularized by the birds. To everything, there is a season.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think the way I hold that is, you know, that there, there, things are always forming and falling apart at the same time. And And I've run across where Shiva is also known as the transformer. And since this creative energy comes into form, whether it's the plant behind you or us or whatever it might be, and when the form has you know run its course, Shiva the transformer takes that energy back and it recycles. But of course, when we're the form, we say it's destroyed because that most likely that's death for us, or the plant runs its course but i I think you know to talk about this in I don't think this accounts for me to justify cruelty or that, or destruction that we do. But the natural things that happen in life, you know, I often, from my cancer journey, think that, you know, suffering is to humans what erosion is to nature. And that there's enough that happens naturally. But one thing to apply to our current world situation, I think, globally, is things are always coming together and always falling apart at the same time. But we in the modern global world I feel like we're addicted to the noise of things falling apart. That when things fall apart, they make a lot of noise. But when things come together, they're quieter. And, you know, you just take the weather report. When we were young, right, when we had three channels, right, (laughs) it was called weather report. I turn it on now, it's called storm Storm was only one form of weather, last I knew. So, like, it's always in our face, this addictive kind of thrill to watching things break or be afraid and get in a rush of fear uh, that things are going to fall apart or they have they are right now watch yeah the drama and excitement
0: of it sells airtime it attracts eyeballs or, or viewers and that's why they do it if you watch the amount of coverage that took place in the 2016 election, there was one particular candidate who was always blowing everybody's minds, and the media covered it because drama sells.
1: Yeah, well, I I think that it's unclear. There's certainly a, a, all over the globe, there's stridency and fear and violence, and it's unclear yet to me where it's going. This is all very real. But, you know, the book More Together Than Alone, which came out last year, was a book that that took very different than my other books. And it was a book that took 13 years for me to research and it's no no means definitive. Um, But I was interested in looking historically and cross-culturally at moments when we've worked well together and simply lifting up those stories and what lessons there are and that lineage of care and interdependence. And as I looked into all that, and it's just by, you know, it's not my timing that the book came out now. I just Happen to be done after all that time. But one thing is that there have been long waves in the ocean of time that we've pushed each other away and long periods where we've come together. And it's unclear where we're going. We're at one of those historical turning points. And if we're going into a dark time or a strident time, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of the dark ages in Europe, which were only dark in Europe. We were kind of taught... In school, that the whole world was going through. No, the lot everywhere else in the world was pretty enlightened at that time. It was just <laughs> Europe. But during that period, only ten percent of the European population was literate, and ten percent kept literacy alive for two or three hundred years. And if we are entering a modern dark time, it's incumbent on us, uh, and all the work we're doing in every way. To keep the literacy of the heart alive. Before I forget, I, I'm going to
0: comment on what you just said. But before I forget, tell that little story you tell about you know the people who say "Get away from me, you're you're weird." Oh I don't, yeah. I don't know you, versus oh you're you're something different. Teach me.
1: Tell that little story. Yeah. So this is a chapter. I mean, trying to understand this pattern we were just talking about, I kind of explored this. Imagine this parable, if you will, of. Of when the two first, it's a chapter called The Two Tribes in More Together Than Alone where the first two people came upon each other. Before that they thought they were alone. So imagine one person in prehistoric times walking out outside the front of a cave and he sees someone in there and they see each other. They oh, go, oh, who are you? <laughs> I thought I was alone. And imagine the one in the cave looks at his other and says, you're different. Go away. And I think that that was the beginning of the go-away tribe. And depending on how much fear governs us, then there are are periods in history and even in our modern times where members of the go-away tribe say, well, I can't trust you go away. I have to put you where I can watch you. So I'm going to put you in a ghetto. I'm going to put you in a reservation. I'm going to put you in a refugee camp. I'm going to put you in exile. You know, in a cage and yeah, in a cage. And then, when fear metastasizes to such a degree, we have these horrible periods of genocide, where the members of the go away tribe say, "I can't even trust you'll be where I put you. I'm going to make you go away." But if we go all the way back to that mouth of that cave, now and imagine the other person looks in the cave, sees someone, uh, for other for the first time, and says, "You're different." Come teach me. And I think that was the beginning of the come teach me tribe. Thank God you're not me. We are more together than alone. Teach me all I don't know. We'll share it together. Let's grow. And when that has been in the foreground, we've had great periods of enlightenment, you know, like, like the Iberian Peninsula for 750 years where, where Jews, Christians, and Muslims not only tolerated each other, they, it was an unprecedented cross-pollination of, uh, at every level. but the catch is we belong to both tribes. and I can swear to you with all my heart, I am a member of the Come Teach Me tribe, but we can get done with this interview and I can go out and something can hit me or happen to me that will so trigger such fear in me that I'll switch tribes and then I'm going to need you to remind me, no, no, yeah, you experience that, but you don't have to build a whole world view on it. No, we're more together than alone. And it's unclear right now where this is all going. Yeah. Well, I think the two tribes
0: quite thoroughly intermingle all over the world, although they might not be. In some cases, it's obvious. The marchers in Charlotte a couple of years ago with the tiki torches obviously belong to a certain tribe, but people all over the place. Um, and like we were saying earlier, the noisier stuff grabs the headlines. But in the circles I travel in, I just came back from the Science and Non-Duality Conference, it's it's kind of a foregone conclusion among many people that um, we're going through huge changes and we've only begun to see the... Um, turbulence that may may necessarily um, be there as the transition takes place. But everyone seems to feel that there is a transition and that there will be something on the other side of that transition that will be well worth waiting for or living for. But no one seems to know exactly just how difficult it's going to be in the transition. And this is kind of, maybe it's naive belief, but there seems to be a universal consensus among people of a certain way of thinking that a kind of a new age of some sort is dawning and that so many entrenched elements of the old age are going to just have to somehow be shaken down or rooted out or something. And that that process is beginning, if not well underway already.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, for me, I, 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 you know, like I, I believe that, uh, I mean, that all makes sense to me and I would want to add to it. Um, from where I'm sitting on this circle, <laughs> um, you know, I I think there's this paradox between progress and incarnation. You know, on the one hand, we grow, and on the one hand, you know, I have young people in my life, and they seem to assume what I have to struggle to learn somehow, and yet on the other hand, uh, no amount of wisdom exempts us from this incarnation. Like, it's our turn. Like, everybody every life every generation we got different tools we got more complicated things and all these computers and stuff but but everybody in the life journey has to go through the same passages and 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 I feel like I can get inspired and supported from wisdom and from other times but there's no shortcuts there's no shortcuts and so there there is this For me, this this like I said, this paradox between progress and incarnation. What happens? um, uh, So, in that way regard, I don't think there's anything new. And on the one level, and yet it is our turn to shed all this and move through it, as has happened time and again throughout history. You know, I I don't think people in prehistoric times were primitive. I think history was uh, I. I kind of see history as we're all the same six inches from heaven and from the gutter. (laughs) And, you know, we, of course, we we all, all cultures, we want to say progress is a climb up a mountain. And of course, where we are is the top so far. And I, you know, I I remember two things that strike me about, you know, prehistoric, you know, I've always been fascinated and, and this is because of a metaphor about suffering, but with, with the first flutes that were ever carved by hand, which, you know, as far as I could look into were like 36,000, 70,000 years ago in, in, in Northern Germany and in Europe. And those are made out of mammoth bone. So when, when living was that difficult surviving, what made someone stop and carve holes, hollow out a mammoth bone and yeah, that's the person I'd like to interview, you know? And, and it says to me, I mean, what do I know all this time later? But what it says to me is um, that was as essential to living as outer survival, that music, that the inner life, that in order to survive out here, we have to thrive in here. Yeah, so forget being primitive. We just had different tools. One of the main themes of
0: one of your books, I think maybe it's drinking from the liver river of life. The liver, the river of life. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a little gory. Is that, you know, we have this innate creativity and there's a sort of a natural urge to express it. And if that urge gets thwarted, then it creates frustration. Remember Thoreau's line of, you know, most men live lives of quiet desperation. Oh, here's here's a quote from you. You said uh, if you stop expressing, you may still walk around and buy groceries and pay the bills, but you will not be alive. So we have this natural urge to express, and I think that relates to something we said, we were talking about in the beginning of this conversation, which is that there is an all-pervading intelligence, which is evident if we look closely at anything, you know, a single cell or a little bug or anything, and that intelligence thoroughly pervades us, and we're all instruments of that, instruments, sense organs of the infinite, and not only sense organs, but organs of action through which the infinite can express itself in the world. And if the infinite is unable to do that, then there's a sort of a bottling up phenomenon, which builds a pressure, and that pressure is uncomfortable. Maybe yeah, you'd, you'd well, like to
1: riff on that. Yeah, and, and more than uncomfortable, it's, it's life draining you know, my understanding of expression and creativity changed dramatically after my cancer journey. Before I was teaching at Albany University, I had my doctorate and I was hoping, you know, if I devoted myself to poetry and teaching, maybe, maybe, you know, I might write one or two great poems, maybe, you know, (laughs) and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm like in my thirties and I'm upside down, inside out, I'm in the hospital. Well, forget writing great poems, I needed to discover true poems that would help me live, And now that I'm in my 60s, I want to be the poem, and the words are just a trail. And so this whole book, "Drinking from the River of Light," "The Life of expression," you know, I use the analogy of breathing. you know we're here, we, we have this time together. We, we have to inhale and exhale. We can't decide for this next time. We'll just inhale, see how it goes. No, that's not going to work. And the heart. Has to inhale and exhale. And the way the heart inhales is that it perceives and feels. And the way the heart exhales is it expresses. And it doesn't really matter what form it expresses. If we don't express, it will damage our aliveness. And through that inhaling and exhaling of heart, we remain an active conduit to life force, I believe. And so it's less, you know, we're so trained in the modern world with a manufacturing imprint that we turn everything, even with good intention, into a product. It's not so much about what we create. It's how alive we are brought for that engagement. And and beyond the formal arts, I mean, it could be anything that we devote our wholeheartedness to. It could be gardening. It could be stamp collecting. It could be repairing cars. It could be anything that we are wholehearted And give ourselves over. And I I think that what is not expressed is depressed. And so, uh, you know, one of the liabilities of not expressing is we get isolated. We stop being a sense organ for the infinite. And now we're a pinball in a pinball machine called society.
0: Yeah. What would you say to a person who, you know, single mom working two jobs, trying to survive, who, you know, just really has to sort of Life is difficult, and all this talk of expressing and being creative and all just seems like an airy-fairy notion, you know? It's just not possible given the, the pressures on such a person, and there are many such people in today's society.
1: You know, I would say that this is where we're talking about we have to personalize this. And I come back to very basic things, you know, a kind of a barometer, a, kind of a question I ask myself every day when I'm involved with things is, is this heartening or is this disheartening? For anyone who's struggling with... We all have to survive and thrive. Everyone who ever lived has to survive and thrive. And they are both require great skill. But if all we do is survive without thriving, what's the point? And plus, we won't do it very well very long. So we have to somehow find... And so all of what we're talking about here is... What are the ways in which your heart and soul and your relationships can breathe and be heartened, enlivened, empowered? And it's the same thing we go back to. What made that prehistoric cave person stop trying to make fire in a cave and start carving a bone to make, turn make into music a flute? Yeah lest it was something in that person said, this is as essential. If all I'm doing is gathering wood and trying to stay out of the path of mountain lions and hiding in a cave, what is the point? You know, I teach a lot and I'm always convening circles, which I love. And, you know, I like to say that formally or informally, this is a lineage. You know, we've always had to stop to make sense of this whatever this is. And I imagine that in cave times as well, probably a clan was chasing a mountain lion, hoping they could, you know, get some food. And all of a sudden the mountain lion chased them, you know, and they, they're they in the cave and they're all hiding in there. And there's somebody in the back got his head in his hand said, is this all there is? What's the point? What are we doing? And I think that's probably the first retreat, you
0: know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's interesting because these days, a lot of people are talking about, well, with the way things are going with, automation and self-driving trucks and all the other stuff, there's going to be a lot of people with a lot of spare time. You know, we're not just not going to need all the manpower that we now need in order to get things done. So what is everybody going to do? And how is the wealth going to be? rearranged so that if even if people aren't doing very much, they can support themselves. And I think the obvious answer is, well, it'll give them the freedom, hopefully they'll use it this way, to do something creative, something evolutionary, something spiritual, something that helps other people and so on. And they won't just sit around on their butts watching TV,
1: although probably some will. Through progress, you know, 200 years ago or 150 years ago you know, we had to do a lot of physical work to have heat and a hearth and have food and everything. And so now, you know, we all have to, we don't have, I'm glad I don't have to do all that. And everybody has to do some kind of physical exercise to have aerobics to compensate that we don't have to do all that hard labor. Well, we're also at a point where we need to do spiritual aerobics. We need to do things, for instance, You know, wonderfully, I don't need to climb to the top of a mountain to get that view. You know, I don't even have to leave my room anymore. I mean, I can Google it, you know, (laughs) right? So in one way, that's great in the sense that there are places on earth I may never get to see. So that's wonderful that I can see them. But it doesn't replace the spiritual aerobic of actually climbing and at the end of that climb, seeing that view in person. Everyone needs spiritual aerobics to hearten their lives, to keep them connected to everything larger than them while they're surviving. Well, this triggers a couple of things I'd like to share, if it's okay. So one is, let's talk about the discord and the disconnection of that. And I want to I talk about the epidemic of mass shootings, especially in America, and yes, you know, clearly it's so obvious there's way too many guns, but more deeply, okay, and I don't want to use a, a kind of a biological metaphor to, to understand this. So, you know, an aneurysm is where a cell in a body, a weak cell in a body under great pressure explodes. A single Maybe. cell or is it like a capillary or a little vein or something? Well, it could be either, you know, the, but so, but, but the point is there's a small part that is weak and under great, the body's pressurized there's high blood pressure, there's stress, there's whatever it explodes. It usually leads to a stroke, right? Well, our society is a global body. And, and I would offer that, that more than any other country in, in the world, these individuals who are responsible for what they do, who are out of their minds, who are, you know, uh creating great harm, and also their social aneurysms. They are weak cells in the societal body. And so it's not enough for me to say that person's out of their mind, and they're respon yes, they're responsible, and it has nothing to do with me. No, because I am contributing. I can ask, and we need to ask, why is our society so pressurized that we have an epidemic of social aneurysms exploding? Why? What can we do to depressurize and normalize the global body so that we have less an epidemic? And at the same time, these individuals are responsible for what they do. So th- this has to do with deeper a deeper form of education and caring for each other, you know? So, and I don't have any answers to it, but it seems really uh, really powerful to me. So, so the second thing more kind of archetypally is, and this is about how do we survive and thrive, and this we look at, at a little fish as a teacher. So we all learn like in seventh or eighth grade that, You know, and we take it for granted, but fish are pretty miraculous, right? They're air breathing creatures that live in water. You or I trying to do that can't happen. So how do they do this? Well, we learn in middle school that, you know, they have this organ that's called a gill. And what a gill does by a process of, of, of fusion or diffusion, I'm not sure which, um, but basically water's made out of hydrogen and oxygen Through the gill, water comes in, it extracts what it needs to live, the oxygen, and discharges the rest. Now, the teacher here is that our heart is our gill. Our heart is our gill. And by being authentic, wholehearted, present, awake, caring, our heart extracts what is essential as we swim in the river of experience so that we can live and, th- and thrive and we discharge the rest. And if we don't, then that gill, the heart, the emotional heart, the psychological heart, just like a, a biological heart, will get plaque and will get clogged. What does that mean in terms of emotional cycle? That means assumptions and conclusions. That means wounds. That means memories. That means an obsession with worry and fear. And we stop taking in what's essential. It won't get through. So, you know, I was, teach- I was teaching this when I discovered this metaphor. I was talking about it, and I was, at a, I was teaching on an island off Canada, uh, up off uh, Vancouver. And, uh,
0: Vancouver Island. Or Salt salt Spring,
1: maybe. Yeah, yeah. So at the break, at lunchtime, this one person who was in the group came up and said, I happen to be a marine biologist. And I thought, oh, I've really screwed this metaphor (laughs) up. Now he's going to tell me, you know. But no, he said, no, no, you're okay. (laughs) It makes sense. But he helped further it. And, you know, we also learn early in school that fish need to move through water so water will go through the gills, but they'll die. They have to keep moving. Well, he said, that's not true for all fish. I think it's true he sharks. He said, that's only true sharks and skates, is what he told okay. me. And why is because sharks and skates, their gills have no muscle. So they don't have a choice. They have to rush through water in order to breathe, get what is essential but all the other fish have a choice because their gills have muscles. So hey, they can, can tre- see them
0: flapping, they go in and out like yeah. that.
1: Yeah, so they can tread water and pull life in and take what's essential. So this is very helpful because it shows us why we need inner practice. doesn't matter what, you need an inner practice so your heart starts to have muscle. Otherwise, you gotta run through life taking needless risks. This helps explain the life of addiction. We got to gamble, drive fast, have dangerous sex, you name it, like sharks and skates, so that we get what's essential. Because if we don't have an inner practice, our heart doesn't have any muscle. And we got to take needless risk. So all of this connects with these social aneurysms. If we get far enough out and far enough isolated, and we have no muscle on our heart, then violence becomes a last attempt to feel.
0: Yeah, an interesting point. And, um, you know, regarding the addictions and all the other things you just mentioned, I think usually people who live that way, if they don't have the thing they're addicted to or the stimulation, the, the fast driving or whatever, they settle down and they, they begin to feel an inner discomfort that they haven't attended to. And so they they want to get the stimulation again to obscure that inner discomfort. So it becomes this, you know, there's kind of running away from looking inward. Yeah, Um, yeah. And obviously there's a thing you have to go through where you finally at some point do look inward, feel that stuff, and work your way through it. And then having worked your way through it, there's a, a contentment that you never knew existed that's actually been suppressed all along. By all the the surface uh, stimulation that you've been engaging in. A couple more thoughts. In uh, Drinking from the River of Light, you say, As human beings, we are a beautiful braid of the infinite and the finite. While our being is bottomless, our humanness has limits. That's the curse blessing that has us looking everywhere for what's right before us and within us. And I thought of that quote when you um, were talking about the aneurysm point and the, the school shooters and the other violent people as as the sort of the weak cells that burst. Again, as human beings, we're afraid of the infinite and the finite. Our being is bottomless. I think that being, which is bottomless, is we could use the phrase collective consciousness. There's like, just like the ground in a forest that all the trees are planted in and growing yeah. out of, there's a sort of a shared consciousness which it actually collects stuff. It collects st- stress and tension, for instance, you could say. And at a certain point, it's like a cloud that's collected too much static electricity that it has to break out in lightning. So that stress or tension has to break out in some way, either as a war or as a, you know, some kind of violent event. So rather than let it get to that point, if we could do something to diminish or neutralize the stress in that collective consciousness, then those those violent things wouldn't have to happen. And I think that's what spiritual practice tends to do, because we tend to that field consciously, and we, we kind of enliven it in our own life. And in doing so, I think we enliven it in a positive way throughout the whole field, which enlivens it for everyone, and which neutralizes the, the tension in
1: it. Yeah, so you know, one of the a couple of things that that come up here, one that comes up from the community book, more together than alone, is you know one of the the great natural examples of community is an aspen grove, because aspens, and the first time I was it was in New Mexico uh, in San outside of Santa Fe, I was in an aspen grove for the first time. But the largest aspen grove is in is known is in Utah. And it's like 160,000 square acres, and it's believed to be 80,000 years old. And what's powerful here, which kind of is an image of what you were just describing, is above ground aspens are singular trees. But below ground, unlike a lot of other trees, they share one root system. And so an aspen grove is one of the largest single living organisms on Earth. So above ground, we're, we look like we're, you know, this is a great metaphor for community and for that shared consciousness and shared being. Because we, we yes, we walk around, we're individuals, you know, we, we have different ideas and feelings and histories. But in the invisible ground of spirit, we all share one root system. And so more than just altruism, if my roots start to get diseased, you have to care. Because they're your roots. And and part of the natural healing of the the how a, an aspen grove maintains its well-being is there's an, just just like how in the body, you know, if there's a cut, you know, blood cells will run to the site of the injury. Well, same too with an aspen grove. If one set, you know, if a couple of trees have diseased roots or weakened roots, nutrients will go from the rest of the grove to the site of the illness. And and so you know this is so there's there's several things that come up here that you know so we have this natural capacity and I do believe when we're awake and when we're wholehearted and when we're we lean into our humanity because I believe that through my humanity through my felt wholeheartedness of my my experience as a human being I touch into that greater field I I can. Glimpse it mentally by going above, but I don't inhabit it unless I go through my humanity. And so, a personal example of this, which is powerful for me, was my father, who's gone now. He lived to be 93 and he died three or four years ago. And at the end of his life, my brother lived nearby and did a lot of the daily heavy lifting. And I lived about a thousand miles away. So, I would come and be where I could, you know, come and stay, and and I was with him in the hospital, and had some wonderful time alone with him. And there I was, probably a lot of people experienced this. There, there I was. All of a sudden, he had a, had he had had a couple of small strokes, and um, I was feeding him applesauce. There I was, and it was a bittersweet moment. It was beautiful and sad and heartbreaking and everything. And everything, all of a sudden. All of life for me was in those moments of getting that spoon in his mouth and not disturbing his breathing and not hitting his teeth. And he was like, we were doing this little dance, and he was kind of reaching for it, and I was tearing up. And And all of a sudden, to my surprise, I was I had tripped into a moment of wonder in this hospital, sad, beautiful, heartbreaking noise in the hall nurses dropping things and what there, it was, there it was. and then when i could inhabit when i gave myself i held nothing back gave everything i could to be in that moment i by going to the bottom of that feeling i tripped into the well of all feeling and so all of a sudden by being as thoroughly in my life as possible I was suddenly in the moment of every adult child that had ever fed a dying parent. And I was not alone. And so in a mystical, deeply spiritual way, I had suddenly, by facing what was mine to face and giving my all to it, I had tripped into that common feeling in the collective conscious field. And I've started to wonder and think about and reflect on that that connection is at the heart of resilience. When I can feel whatever I'm faced with and face it as thoroughly as possible, I trip in to the other moments that other human beings have been there. And that makes me as strong as I am and stronger. That makes me all of I am and more than I am. Here's a couple of quotes from uh, More
0: Together Than Alone that relate to what you were just saying. One is, intimacy is a catalyst for the experience of oneness. And then you say, um, community becomes the art and science of understanding and engaging the life force that moves through everything. And it reminded me of a quote from the near the very end of the Rig Veda. It says, um, go together, speak together know your minds to be functioning together from a common source in the same manner as the impulses of creative intelligence in the beginning remain together, united near the source. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah that's... So we're all just like little sprouts or little uprisings, little plants in a forest and the ground of the forest is our deeper nature and our, the individual plant that we think we are is our individual nature. Yeah. Again, sense organs of the infinite.
1: Yeah, I think it, you know one of the things for me, I talk about it and drink from the river of light, is uh, which I just helped me as a, a young poet and a young mystic was reading Carl Jung's passage about that he thought artists and poets were lightning rods for the unconscious, and that's always felt for me true that by being. As thorough and honest about my own experience, I can, without design or will, I can then be available to be a lightning rod. And one of my early books, The Book of Awakening, which is a spiritual day book, and that's the, the one that has really probably reached more people than any of my books. And But I'm often, you know, people kindly will often say to me, you know, that it's like, I read this day, and it's like you wrote it just for me. You know, I'm not that smart, but what it's a tribute to is that what we're talking about—that when I and what Jung was talking about—that if I look deep enough into me, I find you, and if you look deep enough into you, you find me, because we meet in the center. We grow from that common center, and you know, the in the the Christian uh, the desert mystic fathers of the third century had a wonderful metaphor that speaks to this and also about community and it was of a wagon wheel you know like we see in westerns or a bicycle for that matter or a bicycle wheel sure but what they would say is that what they offered was every spoke in that wheel is an individual soul and in how we become our uniqueness as we go out every spoke holds up a different unique place on the rim and the rim is community, and it needs every soul to hold its place. But if we go in in our being, we all meet in the hub, in the same center, and that's God. They called it, whatever you want to call it, it's a thousand names. But what I love about it's such a powerful metaphor is that you take any one part of that out, you got no wheel. Right. Right. You take a spoke out, it falls apart. You take the hub out, done. And without the rim, it's nothing. And so this interrelationship between our our being and our becoming and our uniqueness and our commonness, you know.
0: Yeah. Those of us who ride bicycles know that, um, you know, if a single spoke breaks, uh, the wheel starts to wobble. It It gets out of alignment and it starts rubbing against the brake pads. And then you can't ride as easily or as smoothly. And that kind of reminded me of that John Dunn poem, you know, No Man is an Island. I just looked it up. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. We're yeah. all in this together, you know. Like you were saying earlier about the the birds in spring the, and the bees and all the things that come around in the springtime. You know, look what we're doing. where, what about two hundred species a day go extinct or something like that these days, and we think we're actually immune to the implications or the effects of that. No way. I mean, we're actually we're you know undercutting our own
1: roots or something by. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, there was one thing, I have a chapter in the community book and this speaks to the American character, both its, its gift and its shadow. And, you know, with all the traveling I do, when I have a passport that I use for an ID, you know, and I was going into Canada actually, and uh, it was a long line and I didn't have anything to read and I was fidgety. And so I started, I started reading the passport. I never looked at it. And every page has a quote from a president. And so there, there were these two, which I I, I made it. explored this more because I stumbled onto this. So there was a quote on one page, I think it was page 19, then 20. So the first quote was by Lyndon Johnson, which basically said something like, we will bend the world to our dream. If, if what we are dreaming doesn't work, then get rid of it and we will make, we will bend the world, you know, Mm. real arrogant. Manifest destiny. Uh, Yeah. Right. But then on the next page was Dwight Eisenhower who had liberated the, the, you know, some of the concentration camps. And he said, you know, the only thing in order for America to live out anything, we have to live it from the heart and the heart of our values. And if you think, Back, it made me really reflect that even in in how how the founding fathers created America while maintaining slavery, we have always had this, this tension between are we loving the world or are we bending the world? And, and and we see that you know globally with climate change and how we're bending and breaking and destroying everything rather than loving it, and and so much goes back to that in a daily choice and in a global choice between love and fear.
0: Yeah, you know, there's a lot of, obviously, contention these days between different factions on issues like climate change and various other things, and you you say, and I guess it's in More Together Than Alone, listening to each other's stories changes the conversation from how can you think that way to what can we learn from each other? But how would you apply that teaching in a conversation with, let's say, a climate denier or, you know, a much more extreme example, a, a white supremacist or somebody like that? Yeah.
1: And so with everything I've learned by doing all this research and being a third generation American Jew, well, when would I think that there would be Nazis in the streets of America? And what are we supposed to do with that? Right. I don't again, I don't have the answers. I can just speak to it as one person in this circle of humanity. And one thing that comes to me constantly is in our age right now is every day I ask the question, how can I be visible today? What does that mean today? Uh, Because I think, I think we can't vanish. And so the first thing for me is we can't vanish. I can't become the thing that, that is so oppositional, but I can't vanish either. And then I also think that in like all this, the the circles that I convene, I will welcome anyone into the circle except those intent on destroying the circle. I don't know any other way to hold it. And 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 given all this, so you know, because the great paradox being Jewish is that, and not not blaming anyone who, but being a student of the Holocaust. In you know, so much of the Jewish character that is about being visible and standing for conviction and standing up. And yet, it was only the people who were hidden who escaped the Nazis. So what, how are we supposed to hold that paradox, right? Like, And so I almost feel as a tribute, not only to being a member of our community, but my own cultural heritage, almost as a tribute to all those who were lost in the Holocaust, I, I I don't know what it, I got to be visible. I don't know what that means every day, but I've got to be visible. And and then in terms of like being in conversation, you know. And this I learned from one of my students. I have a a woman who's who's our age, and she shared this with a our circle. This was a a group that met over a year, so we came back into each other's lives. But she had a a cousin. They grew up together as little kids, and uh, and now they're older, and a lot of the family is passed away and the cousin who's become one of these people who doesn't listen, who's a fundamentalist, who's very closed, a a go away tribe member. And he said, well, you know, gee, wouldn't it be great to spend time like when we were kids? And she said to the group, she said, I don't know where it came from me, but I said to him, I'd love that only if we share our experiences and not our conclusions.
0: Mm, nice Nice line.
1: Yeah. I think that's profound. And I don't know exactly how to apply it, but I think that we can argue about abortion, let's say. And we may not see abortion the same way, but if I ask you f- for the experience and, and stop focusing on the conclusion, it's going to change the, you know if I say to you well, I, I see you feel strongly about this, why? What's the story? Why, why, what led you to this why this is so important to you? And I think that there's something there that we may never agree, but I think it changes the ground of the conversation. Then I ran into a a quote by Longfellow, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who said, if we really listen to the sufferings of our enemies, they would no longer be our enemies. The feeling I get as I listen to this
0: is is that uh, what I'm actually experiencing as I'm listening to you Is a softening of the heart, and I think that might somehow be key to resolving what we're talking about here. Because there's sort of a there's all these stories in the Bible and Vedic literature and and other stories where a person is about to do something, kill somebody or something, and they say he hardened his heart, and then he did it. If the heart can be softened, I think we can stand by our convictions on. the right for Jews to live or black people or, or anybody else. And, and, you know, the, the right to have a clean environment and the, all that stuff, but we can with tenderness and a soft heart, have a conversation with those who feel differently and perhaps to an extent, even if their heart hasn't been softened. I mean, look at the way Gandhi dealt with the British.
1: Oh yeah, you know? absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's wonderful what you're saying about softening the heart. I think it's so, it's, it's so important. And I think that, you know, I think there are two primary ways that human beings grow and that their hearts are softened, and, that they, and that's through great love and great suffering.
0: Yeah. And I mean, Martin I, Luther King is another example of somebody who just refused to resort to, yeah. to the violence and the hatred and all that and ended up winning in the end.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that we can't, ironically, I, think, I don't think we can change anyone. I think we can only be present. And loving, and not vanish. And uh, you know, I think that we learn by by shedding, willfully shedding, or being broken open. If we don't shed; we will we'll be broken open, one know? way or the other. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's 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 another whole thing: is that the more adamant we are, the the more violent, the breaking open is going to be, but one way or the other, it's going to happen. And, and if we can learn to just sort of soften naturally, then there won't have to be this, you know, hard cracking of a shell. Um, but I was just going to say, there's this documentary, uh, which I haven't watched yet, I don't think, but there's a, something about a black guy who goes down south, and he actually sits down with Ku Klux Klan members And eventually gets them to the point where they realize what a crazy thing they're doing. And he collects their robes. And he has this whole collection of Ku Klux Klan robes from having had these conversations and having really befriended guys who who hate his guts, you know, to begin with. (laughs) It's just a beautiful example of of the kind of thing we're talking about.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, um, being wholehearted, which is a quiet courage, I think. That it takes, it takes a quiet courage to be who we are everywhere. And again, to use a, uh, you know, a a biological metaphor in your body or my body, if we have one more healthy cell than, than toxic, we're considered healthy. We'd like a lot more. As long as we got one, we're leaning in the right direction. And humanity as a global body, every soul is a cell in that body. And so you know inner work and service are inextricably linked, and the health i mean we can do what we can do, whether it's in a particular situation, but also being a healthy soul is is going to help tip the scale of humanity to staying healthy today
0: mm. I interviewed somebody just recently, I forget who it was i'd have to look it up, but she was saying that um on numerous occasions, when there has been some big event like the tsunami in Indonesia or nine eleven or a number of other earth world shaking events like that, she has known it and felt it before it became public news. It's like it's kind of like Star Wars, where Obi Wan Kenobi said, I, "I I feel a great disturbance in the force." You know, when the Death Star blew up the planet Alderaan. But there there are people in this world who are so kind of attuned to or immersed in or merged with the unbounded awareness that when something happens in, that rocks that field, they feel it instantly. And um, a lot of such people tell me that um, they feel very often like washing machines where a lot of stuff gets filtered through them and they they sit there and they just kind of resolve these things. It's as if their individual karma or whatever has been resolved, and they they're taking on chunks of collective karma and kind of filtering it through their nervous systems or through their consciousness and melting it away.
1: I mean, you're talking about, an, uh, to me, an extreme, highly developed form of compassion. And, and but you know, compassion, compassion itself, the word really means to be with. You know, for whatever reason I think that life has been made just uh, difficult enough that we need each other.
0: <laughs> Sometimes more difficult.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I I think that's to ensure the journey of love that we are more together than alone and that that when we when we can be there for each other, we distribute the weight. Do you, do you know the work of Ed Tick? No. Oh, and he's someone you might want to interview. Okay. Ed Tick is a visionary in veteran, in the healing of veterans. And he's done a lifelong work. We started out as young poets together and got drawn into our particular callings. But Ed is remarkable. And he's done research throughout cultures about how veterans have been dealt with. And one of the things he talks about, which brought this up for me in our conversation, is how in in Native American community life we have such a misunderstanding of like a war dance. We, we see, you know, painted feathers yeah. and mm-hmm. dancing and all. And some, some of that was in preparation, but there's a whole nother aspect of it. That was when warriors would come back, having had to do horrible things to enable the tribe to go on for everyone. The tribe would meet in community and they would reenact what they had to do and what they experienced so they wouldn't have to carry it alone. And that was the war dance afterwards, not before. And that they distributed the stuff, like you went out and did this on our behalf. Let us, so that you don't have to carry the horrors. Let us listen to your stories. Let us have compassion. Let us distribute the horror and the pain. And, you know, one of the things that Ed Talks about is that, you know, on Veterans Day, <laughs> rather than having sales and closing schools, we should be opening up the schools and the town halls and the synagogues and the churches so that veterans can tell their stories and not carry those horrors alone. And that the community they did this for receives them so they can reintegrate.
0: Yeah, that was particularly tough after the Vietnam War where the troops came home and everybody hated them here, or at least the young people did. She's pretty much the same age group as the, as the troops, you know, the, and there was, you know, just to this day, there are Vietnam War veterans who are just traumatized and never had a chance. Oh, the my chain, God. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. Just awful. But how, how do we open our heart? You know, I, I think I've come to understand that, that there are two ongoing forms of compassion. One is a continual like initiation or apprentice level of compassion, which never ends. And that's where, you know, we have something in common, so it opens my heart. I talk, spoke about my father. If you lost your father, oh, I, I, I know we have that in common, and I feel drawn to be there for you. Or if your heart is broken, my heart's been broken, we can. But I think that's all an apprenticeship for how we open our heart to each other when we don't have anything in common. And that to me is the maturing of compassion. And my first experience of this was years ago where I just stumbled, I was in a restaurant bar and there was a guy, he turned out to be a Vietnam vet and he was kind of agitated and kind of loud and he was nearby and I wound up talking to him and it turned out he was a medic. He had been a medic. And I'm listening and, and I said, boy, I, I can't imagine. And he slammed his hand on the table and said, no, you can't imagine. And I said, no, I can't, but I'm here. And that was my first introduction. I didn't have these language for it. But when I look back, I think that was my first introduction. Like I had no, nothing in common with this person. All of where I have had things in common, where I could train and learn to be compassionate is so that I can be compassionate where I don't have anything in common with anyone.
0: Yeah. That's where it's most needed, I guess, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's easy for a couple of vets to commiserate with each other, but... If you've never been in their shoes, it's it's it takes a greater capacity for compassion, you know. To well,
1: and then we grow. You know, I feel like everyone who suffers has a wisdom the rest of us need, and since we all suffer, we all have a wisdom that everybody else needs. And we often don't ask of those who suffer, "What do you see for where you've been? What have you learned that the rest of us need?" You know, I have a a small poem of mine that. I can recite it, goes like this, the mystery is that whoever shows up when we dare to give has exactly what we need hidden in their trouble. Nice. For
0: some reason, what you were just saying reminds me of a, another v- little Vedic saying, which is Vasudev tukum, or how does it go? tukumbakam or something like that, which is, the world is my family, basically. I think genetically that is literally true. (laughs) But it's also true in a very real sense. And, you know, it's like families have feuds and obviously, you know, become estranged. Members become estranged from one another for years or decades at a time. And humanity has done that too. But then families can mend. And I think the world can mend. You know, we were talking earlier about some big transition we might be going through. I, I think a time may come, perhaps even in our lifetimes, where there's a much more familial atmosphere around the entire globe. And you see signs of it already.
1: Actually, you know, there's a lot of hope in the younger generation. And and there's a lot that's happening under all the noise of everything breaking apart right now that is hopeful. I, I actually hold, I feel like everything we're going through is like in all those eight years when President Obama was in office. And globally, we were in a very opening or, or collective heart softening space and I don't really view where we are as a change of direction as more as a, a collective undertow before the tide continues huh, yeah. because I feel like this way of life especially in the west of the patriarchal white male dominated I feel like the dinosaurs I feel like it's coming to a close and and they're going ugly
0: yeah I also feel that where we are now is a time when a lot of we could say impurities that have been in the blood of collective consciousness are coming together and expressing themselves as boils on the skin so to speak Ugh. and the boils are oozing and popping and you know but it's, it, and it's not a very pleasant experience but in the process I think a lot of stuff that has been going on for a long time is being exposed and things are changing. I mean, the, the Me Too movement is a case in point.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree.
0: I want to loop back to a couple of things before we run out of time. One is just a, a comment you made in the very beginning, which maybe we'll discuss in greater length, maybe not. But um, just the idea that you, you, you talked about how you don't know if anybody is ever completely enlightened, or if there is any such thing. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I feel like it's saying, you, saying somebody is completely enlightened is like saying somebody is completely educated. I mean, <laughs> which means what? They can't learn anything new? <laughs> I mean, it's impossible. Uh-huh. So, I, th- I think the most enlightened beings that have ever walked the earth are still perhaps are able to uh, learn more, not only in a factual or informational way, but in a spiritual way to deepen or clarify or somehow more fully embody the spiritual realization that they're living.
1: I do agree with you and I feel like we're challenged to, and I have a couple of stories that speak to this I could share with you, that we're we're challenged to inhabit our lives. You know, I think one of the early, when I was learning and earlier in my life, you know, in the West, we tend to view wisdom as understanding truth. but in the East, some of the earlier traditions it's experiencing truth. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and so there's a big difference. And, uh, you know, out in Boulder, Naropa University, I've, I've spoken there a few times, and, and I'm always interested, like, well, why'd you call it Naropa, you know? And so I finally found someone who could share some of that Buddhist history, and it turned out, and maybe you're familiar with this, yeah, that there Naropa... was an
0: ancient U- Buddhist uh, university back in a uh, long time ago.
1: Well, yeah, and Naropa himself, in the 1100s, was like a Houston Smith of his age. He was like comparative scholar. And the story is, or the myth, that he was walking down the street and he was pretty well known and and an old woman passed him and she stopped him and said, Aren't you Naropa? And he got kind of puffed up. He was like ready to get an autograph, you know? And he said, Well yes I am, you know, and and uh, she went, Do you know the heart of all those teachings? And he was kind of caught off guard. He said, Of course I do. And he started to walk away and She started to walk with her cane a little further, the opposite direction, and then he realized he had lied, and he ran after her and got on his knees and said, be my teacher. Oh, very nice. And so ever since then, Naropa was a a symbol of embodied wisdom, not intellectual wisdom.
0: It's very important, and there's a real simple example I mean, that anybody can understand, which is that. You know, you could become an expert in mangoes, let's say. You could study the botany of them and the history of them and the the husbandry of them and all kinds of things about mangoes without ever having actually eaten one. So you have a lot of knowledge but no experience.
1: And, oh, absolutely. You know,
0: and then, of course, you could be somebody who knows nothing about them but enjoys eating them. But it might be good to do both, particularly if you want to breed them or grow them. It's good to have some knowledge and some experience. And so that's definitely the emphasis in the Eastern traditions, Perhaps well let me so let me share Western.
1: yeah, I, I mean, it's just, I want to share a quote from Confucius and a little a little parable, because Confucius he speaks about about this, uh, and what I love is he, this is how he defines nature and culture, but there's no judgment. they're just two different ways of learning. So he says that to arrive at understanding from being who you are is nature. To arrive at understanding from being who you are is nature. And the reverse, to arrive at being who you are from understanding is culture. And what I love about that is he doesn't say one's better than the other. They're just two ways of learning. But each way is appropriate for different things. Like, yeah, you can study a mango, but if you can't eat it. Or like I can interview, you know, I want to fall in love. I can interview everybody I meet about love. It's not going to amount to anything until I try. But at the same time, I can learn through understanding before if I'm lighting a fire, burning leaves this time of year. Yeah, I want to ask a few people who've done it first. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's culture. That's cultural learning. Before I, you know, light myself on fire. So and I think that each of us, you know, we tend to think, well, you know, often what I'll do in retreats or things, so if I tell that is I'll say which are which is more uh, innate in you are you more of a natural learner or a cultural learner which comes easier to you and usually what we do is well that's my strength I won't worry about it. no well we we have to give more attention to the other so we can be balanced
0: mm-hmm.
1: good point. You know, it takes two good legs to walk you yeah. don't want to limp all the time on one but the parable I wanted to share about embodiment is there's a master who sends his student to meditate he says I want you to sit by the river until you've learned all the river has to teach you. So he's a very serious student. He's got his cushion, he's got his you know, everything, he's got chimes, he's got his... He's got beads his, and his yeah, he's got <laughs> it all, you know, right. And he, go, and he spends the whole half of the first day figuring out where's the right place to sit. The water's so noisy, it's too close, and he's too far away. He finally settles under a willow tree. And he's really trying hard, and he starts three days of meditation. After which he just has a terrible headache. And just at that moment, a monkey comes along and jumps in the river in front of him. And it's yapping and splashing. And it cracks the apprentice. He starts to weep. And he gathers his things. He goes back and tells his master what happened. And his master puts his arm around him. He says, ah, the monkey heard. You just listened. Uh You know, whatever it is, the goal, we can learn a lot by watching, by learning, by inquiry, but the whole goal is to get wet. And this point may
0: be more relevant than you think, because I've run into a number of people who just have read a lot of Ramana Maharshi books and, you know, things like that, and they kind of get a little bit indoctrinated with the understanding of the oneness of life and so on, and end up concluding that that understanding that they've acquired is the actual experience. And there's an old Tibetan saying, don't mistake understanding for realization. And I always say, you know, if they could actually step into Ramana Maharshi's sandals and experience the world as he was actually experiencing it, there would be this huge contrast from, you know, the little whiff of that unity that the understanding brings to the actual full immersion in it that the ripened experience is.
1: Well, I think this is one of the reasons nobody looks for it but this is i think one of the reasons that we experience heartbreak it breaks the veil of understanding so we have to inhabit we have to be in it we we don't have any choice and you know one of the great paradoxes in you know that every crack is an opening and you know in tibetan mythology it's it's said that a spiritual warrior has a crack every spiritual warrior not a military warrior but one committed to a life of transformation has a crack in their heart because that's how the mysteries get in.
0: That's very Leonard Cohenish. You know that song?
1: Yes. Something yes, about that,
0: the cracks are where the light get in.
1: Yeah. Well, and in the Jewish tradition, there is this, there's, this, uh, there's a little thing in the Talmud where, where there's a saying in Deuteronomy where, you know, that God puts his words like honey on the heart. And there's a precocious student who questions his rabbi, says, well, if God's omnipotent, why doesn't he put it in our heart? And the rabbi says, ah, grasshopper, yeah, <laughs> you, don't, uh, you don't get it. But, you know, if God put the words in your heart, you wouldn't know it. It's, you wouldn't even know it was there, but it's on your heart so that when your heart breaks open, God's words will soothe everything and then you'll feel it. Then God's words will coat and soothe everything that's broken on the inside, and you'll feel it. You'll feel it. You just won't know it. Nice. Well, I think the point that this leads to or points to is
0: that although it may not seem like it, we actually live in a compassionate universe. I feel that. That there's in the big picture, if you could zoom out far enough, then everything has an evolutionary agenda, even the most horrible things—they don't. God is not like capricious or cruel, or—and I keep using the word God, and some people are uncomfortable with that word because it has so many connotations that have been pounded into us, you know, in our youth. Yeah. But by that, I just mean the all-pervading field of intelligence which orchestrates the whole creation, which is quite evident if we look closely enough at anything. But there's this evolutionary trajectory. As Brian Swim said, you know, leave hydrogen alone for 13.7 billion years and you get opera giraffes and rose bushes. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: and so, you well, know, I not zoomed in too far and we think, oh, this is horrible. How could this have happened? Zoom out bigger and we realize, oh, in the big picture, it's all conducive to the vast... Cosmic plan of evolution
1: I think that we do live in a compassionate universe, and you know, like Einstein had talked about that we we need to continually to widen our circle of compassion, you know which it goes to the to everything as a family and the Native American tradition the, the the worldview notion of all my relations that everything is part of that family, all of existence, and so I think that our job is to inhabit life more than repair it that inhabiting it we will repair it yeah starting with
0: repairing ourselves
1: (laughs) yeah so here's a story that connects the two this is a ramana maharshi quote there's a native american creation story that will speak to how that that inner work i mentioned earlier in service and our walk in the world are inextricable, and, and one of the, the and Ramana Maharshi said that to try to save the world mm. without liberating yourself first, yeah, is like carpeting the earth rather than wearing sandals. Exactly, which is just fantastic. There's a story. You know, I live here in Michigan. The Native American nation that was here is still here, but. Uh, You know, historically, it was the Ojibwe Nation, and they, like many indigenous cultures, they have a constellation of creation myths. So this is, this one story is how the Great Spirit connected everything in existence. So he was contemplating how to do that when a little worm inched over and said, I can help. And the Great Spirit was pleased that one of his smallest creatures would offer some help. He said, very well, little worm, help us. The little worm inched over and started to spin barely seeable silk threads from its guts. And sure enough, in enough time, it connected everything in existence. And you know, like a a spider web that you might see in an old barn or something, and you might not see it fully until the light shines on it. And just like that, you couldn't really see the threads that connected everything, except when the great spirit, like the sun, leaned over, and oh my God, there's this golden web connecting everything. So the great spirit was very pleased, said, thank you, little worm. You have saved us, not by being great, but by being true to your own nature. I will let you live forever. Well, the little worm was taken aback. And the great spirit saw this and said, don't you want to live forever? And the little worm said, oh, father, I fear so many years if I can't grow. So the little great spirit Uh, Even one of his little worms has some wisdom here. He said, very well, little worm. I will give you this ability to spin these barely seeable threads around yourself. And when you can be still enough and start swarming and inching and weaving, you will be still enough long enough. You will know the lightness of being that I know. Go. And the little worm inched to the nearest leaf and began to spin the very first cocoon. And in time, became the very first butterfly. Beautiful story. And I love that anonymous, ancient, I love those. And what it says to me, why I tell it, is that the threads that connect everything come out of our guts. And that when we do authentic inner work, we are also doing the work that holds the world together. Yeah, yeah. One in the same. Have you ever heard of Indra's Net? Oh, yes.
0: Yes. And there's a, well, it's the idea that there's sort of an infinite correlation between every point in creation and every other point in creation. And I've heard physicists explain how this is actually the case. I can't really do justice to their explanation, but that every iota of creation, every little bit is correlated with every other little bit. At a certain very fundamental level, there's a complete Intercorrelation, correlation which speaks to the unity of everything at, at its deepest uh, level.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. That's amazing.
0: One final wrap-up point, and this is a, not, not necessarily a smooth segue, but we were talking earlier about, you know, how with automation and so on, there may be less for people to do, and what are they going to do with their spare time? And and you were you gave a nice answer to that, and I was reminded of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs where as certain fundamental things are taken care of, we rise to the next level on the pyramid and we want to address that thing. And then, you know, eventually the peak of the pyramid is self-actualization. I think this is kind of natural. I think that naturally, as people are able to be less enslaved by the sort of basic necessities of life because these things are being taken care of more and more, presuming that society can organize itself in such a way that all the wealth... is available more universally so that people don't have to struggle, that there'll be a kind of a greater flourishing of art and creativity and particularly spirituality because it's a fundamental human need. And people just think, okay, what am I going to do with myself? Well, you know, maybe I should study this book. Maybe I should learn to meditate. Maybe I should, you know, engage in learn Tai Chi or or something like that. It'll it'll be conducive to uh, really more of a
1: golden age in society. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And I also think that there are many different, like Maslow's thing makes sense to me. And I think there are other corollaries that are all working at the same time. Other models? Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think, that, I think that that's true. Going back to my cancer journey, I mean, by believing in everything, I do believe that all things are true. And our job is to figure out or feel how in the logic of spirit. You know, D.H. Winnicott was a child psychologist who really developed this whole notion of healthy attachment and belonging and that that comes first even before Maslow's needs. You know, I I throw that in and I also throw in my, that where we are now, it's important to tend what matters first. And just a very personal kind of example, somewhere along the way, I realized that no one taught me this, but... You know, I started saving what matters. I put it at the end of my list. Like I do all the tedious stuff first and save it as a reward or something like, well, when I'm all done, then I'll like I'll read this book or I'll meditate or I'll do what I love. And then I realized I had it backwards because I need to tend what matters first because that cleans my ears, my eyes, my heart, and it makes everything that I do that I do with more care, and it makes the tedious bearable. Good point. And so I think where we are, so both are true. I think when we do have more time and we are in a golden age, that will, but right now, we can help ourselves by doing what matters first. You know, so again, being very specific, I would invite anyone who's listening to create their own one or two rituals, simple rituals by which they start their day. Example for me, this is just what I do. I do three things every day to start the day. I open the blinds to let light in. So I start my day by letting light in. I take care of our dog. So I'm caring for something living. And my wife is a night person. I'm a morning person. So I make coffee for her when she gets up. So I'm letting light in. I'm caring for something living and I'm doing something for someone I love. And then whatever I have to deal with, I already have a different lens on. Yeah, that's good.
0: One of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's favorite phrases was highest first. And what he meant by that was, you know, there's any number of things that you could do or need to do or whatever, and you're never going to get to do them all, but prioritize them in terms of, okay, what's the highest? If I do that first,
1: then maybe I'll have time to take care of the other things, but at least that will be done. Well, another way that that affects me, and this is, you know, I have a lot of learnings that are not through wisdom on my part, but just because of what happened to me through almost dying and still being here. And one is that I look forward to things, look forward to our, our call, which has been planned for a while. But every day I'm aware of it doesn't have to be this way and that this day could be the last. Yeah. And so I make a list, like a lot of people, of all the things I want or need to do today. And then I sit down, I make the list, and then I sit down each morning with a cup of coffee and I go, if this is my last day, what stays on the list?
0: Mm -hmm. Good point.
1: But I still make the list. Like, I think both, you know, are needed. (laughs) Yeah. Which doesn't mean you can't watch a movie or do
0: some frivolous thing, you know, play play a game of cards or something like that. I mean, you don't have to get too serious about it. You know, beat yourself up over doing silly little things, but in the bigger picture, it is good to prioritize and realize that you know any any breath could be our last. Make hay while the sun shines. Well, Mark, uh, this has been great. I should let you go. I know you have to get going. Are there any um, little concluding thoughts or remarks that
1: you'd like to make before we wrap it up? First off, thank you for letting me be a part of your good work. Amazing, you've done over five hundred of these. That's such a that's a uh, I think an amazing contribution to the root system of the human Aspen Grove, you know, I just really, I so believe in humanity, and I believe that every, everyone has a, a deep, innate teacher in them, and we can listen through, through our love and our suffering. So I would just want to maybe leave a short, with a short poem of mine, which is called Free Fall. If you have one hour of air and many hours to go, you must breathe slowly. If you have one arm's length and many things to care for, you must give freely. If you have one chance to know God and many doubts, you must set your heart on fire. We are blessed. Each day is a chance. We have two arms. Fear wastes air.
0: Beautiful. That's great. Well, thank you so much. Those who have been listening to this who aren't familiar with Mark might want to get familiar. <laughs> his books are really enjoyable to read, and there's a lot of talks and things online that you can listen to also. I will, of course, be li- linking to his website and his books from his page on batgap.com. So whenever you're listening to this, it could be five years from now or whatever, go there and hop right over to his website and uh, you can go right to links to Amazon to get his books. In any case, I'm really um, honored to have had this conversation. It's very enriching for me to to do this and to speak to such wonderful people as you every week. It's just a, a blessing and a, it's not work. I mean, you referred to it as work. It's definitely not work. It's just uh, something really uh, that I'm very grateful for in my life, as I'm sure oh. you are for what what you get to do.
1: Oh, my God. It's all. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank, thank you very much, Rick. It's a joy to journey like this together. Thank you, Mark. We'll be in touch. All right. You take care, okay? Yes, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.